So this is gonna be a little bit more information heavy than usual, uh, but I also believe that what we're gonna talk about this morning is super, super important for us. That what you and I believe about the scriptures has massive bearing on our lives as the followers of Jesus and that Jesus himself actually showed this and demonstrated it with his own life. And one of the most compelling things for me as I look at the life of Jesus was to see just how well he knew his scriptures, how he understood them, how he engaged with them and used them. And and we as his people, as Jesus' followers, we wanna model that same line of thinking and that same practice. Jesus thought these are important, so we wanna think these are important. We wanna know them and engage with them well. So that's gonna be kind of our heart this morning. Does that sound good? Information blast coming your way. It's gonna be good though. Feel, feeling good? All right. Getting some head nods here and there. It's all right. All right, before we dig into kind of looking at the what and the why of it, uh, I thought a good place to start would be to just look at some just raw facts that are objective about what the Bible is that most people are not gonna call into question. So we're gonna start there and then launch from there. So the Bible uh, is a small library or collection of books. It's 66 individual books to be specific. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors. These include prophets, fishermen, songwriters, shepherds, tent makers, judges, and even some kings. The Bible was written in three different languages. It's written primarily in Hebrew and in Greek in the New Testament, but there's small portions of the Old Testament that are also written in Aramaic. The Bible was written across three different continents. So we've got Africa, Asia, and Europe. And then the Bible was written, edited, and compiled over a period of about 1,500 years. So 1,500 years is the time frame we're looking at. This is a super interesting one that we don't think about that much, but the Bible is comprised of multiple genres of literature. So it's not the same thing from start to finish. 43% of your Bible is what could be described as narrative. So when you hear narrative, think like story. Think like the stories of the Old Testament, stories about Jesus's life. 33% of your Bible is poetry. So this includes like love songs. This includes laments, praise songs, and even like the indicting like passionate, fiery poetry that the, the prophets will bring. That last 24% is what we'd, we would define as prose or discourse. So prose, discourse, probably haven't heard those, those two words in a while. It's all good. Uh, prose, discourse, that's kind of what we think about, I think, typically when we think Bible. So this, this is like laws, sermons, letters, essays, just like factual type argumentative stuff but that's actually the smallest section of your Bible. It's only 24%. So a lot of this is, this is pretty cool to think about, right? The fact that it's all these different, the fact that a third of your Bible is poetry. An entire third of your Bible is just poetry for you to read. Genre changes how we read stuff, right? Like I don't read a poem the same way that I read a set of laws. Like I put on a different hat when I read a poem compared to when I'm reading some laws. And I don't read a story in the same way that I read an essay written by somebody, right? So the Bible's full of all these different types of genres. And so we need to know that as we interact 
with it. So those are our straight facts about the Bible that we're just gonna start with. But the more important questions that we're gonna be spending the majority of our time on this morning are what, what do we believe that it is? Like beyond just the raw facts of it, what do we believe that it is? And then not only that, but what does it do as we engage with it? So what do we believe it is? And what do we do? What does it do as we engage with it? So let's start by looking at what we believe about the Bible. So we believe that the Bible is a work of divine human partnership. Okay, the Bible is a work of divine human partnership. So on this side of things, we believe that the Bible is a divine book. This is often called belief in the inspiration of scripture. Another way to put this is that we believe that God is the ultimate author of the Bible. God is the ultimate author of the Bible. That God is behind the the authorship and the shaping of the Bible and that he has brought this thing about, this Bible right here, for two reasons. One, to reveal himself to us. So who he is, what he's like, what he's about, what he's done in the past, what he's planning on doing in the future, what he claims about himself. So not only that, but also God has given this to reveal the truth about ourselves to us. So our, our origins, like what's our purpose? Like what, what, what is our job and our role here? How did, how did all of this get so broken? Why are we so messed up? How do we relate to one another and how do we relate to God? It answers those questions as well. I think that piece is pretty big for us to understand this morning. I think that you and I live in the middle of a culture and generation that feels more than ever adrift and unanchored regarding questions of purpose and identity. We're just dissatisfied with what the world has said. Hey, this is what you were made for. And we're searching, trying to figure out what that is. And it's important for us to see that the Bible has a claim on that. It's gonna make a claim on that that it wants you and I to consider. So um, this, this divine side of things, the fact that the Bible is a divine book, the Bible actually claims this for itself in a couple different places. Paul in 2 Timothy, he writes this, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The apostle Peter, he writes it like this in his letter. He says, for no prophecy, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The author of Hebrews says it like this. He says, long ago at many times and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the Bible claims that what it is communicating to you and I, received by the prophets, received by the apostles, written down and then handed down to us is the word of God himself. We are hearing God's words about himself as we engage with it. And because that is the case, that means that it is both true and trustworthy. God's words are both true and trustworthy. In Numbers 23, uh, it says this, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? 
or has he spoken it and will he not fulfill it? Psalm 12, six puts it like this. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words. They're like silver refined in a furnace on the ground and purified seven times. They're pure and they're trustworthy and true. So we believe that the Bible is on this side of things, it's, the, it's a divine book, that it is authored and brought about by God to communicate truth to you and I as we engage with it. On the other hand, we believe that the Bible is also a human book, that the means by which God chose to reveal himself was through the writing of human beings. So God chose human writing as the means to reveal himself. So the Bible was written, edited, and compiled by men just like you and me, who had real jobs, real backgrounds, real lives, like real thoughts of their own. And this is an important piece, real purpose and intention in what they were writing, okay? So when the authors are writing, this is how I pictured it as a kid. This is maybe kind of a glimmer of how you picture it. But I had this idea that like Paul sits down to write the New Testament, right? And he's like having his breakfast, okay, cereal, obviously, Kellogg's, and he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, God comes in and like, like Holy Spirit zaps him, you know what I'm talking about? And he's just like imbued with glory, like rises up off of his chair, drops a spoon, clattering over to the side and stuff, eyes roll back in the head, and then he like grabs the nearest pen and paper and just, just like starts writing it down. And then he kind of comes to like two hours later and looks and he's, he's written the word of God, right? Like that's kind of how I imagined it going for like all my childhood. And it's actually way more organic than that. So Paul was a real guy with real education, with a real background. He has a real writing style. And he is writing to a specific people in a specific time. And that God knows this and God inhabits that and uses it with purpose. So God makes Paul he sets him apart, he guides his life, and he prepares Paul with all of the skills, life experience, knowledge that he needs so that when Paul finally sits down and puts pen to paper and starts writing, that already in that moment, he is fully equipped and prepared to speak all of the words that God desires him to speak in exactly the way that God desires them to be spoken. That's the organic kind of way that we believe that the scriptures were brought about because the Bible is human in origin, this means a couple things for us. It means that the books and the letters of the Bible have a context that they exist in that we need to understand in order to be faithful readers of it. Okay? So, context meaning Paul is writing to a specific group of people with a specific message in mind. So, you and I don't get to just take Paul's words, rip them out of context cram them into our lives, into our present scenario, just all over the place. We don't get to do that. That it's our job as faithful readers to get back in time, to try to get back into Paul's mind, to get into the mind of the audience that he's writing to and understand that. And when we understand that, that is when we are apprehending the truth of it and we get to apply it to our lives. So they exist in a context Another thing that this means as the, the Bible being a human book is that the Bible is going to be full of the fingerprints, so to speak, of the culture and the time 
in which it was brought forth. It's gonna have the fingerprints of the culture and time it was brought forth in. This includes languages, customs, social dynamics, and even scientific and and cosmological understanding of the times that a lot of times can feel really foreign and archaic to us, but it's okay because God is speaking in and through that. It's gonna contain the fingerprints of those cultures. Because the Bible is human, that means that it was written in specific time, so in time, while communicating a timeless truth to all who would read it appropriately. Appropriately meaning you and I don't get to come to the Bible and try to make it be something that it isn't. We come to the Bible and let the Bible speak to us on its own terms. That's when we grasp the truth of it. So that's the human side of things. And the tension that we feel there, the like the divine human, like, uh, like how does this work? Like God's perfect and he speaks perfectly. And like, but like human, like humankind, we're just messy and we get stuff wrong and we're inaccurate. And it's just like, we're fallible. Like how, how, how do those two come together? And we feel that tension with, when we read the Bible, it's super real. Like it's a super real tension that I wanted to acknowledge. But I also wanted to acknowledge that that's not actually foreign territory completely for us that we actually believe as Christians, believe and operate in some of the same ways in a few different areas. We've just gotten more used to it. So this is similar to how you and I think about ourselves as humanity and Jesus as an individual, if we step back and think about it. So if we look at the Bible's description of our origins as humanity, what we're gonna see is in Genesis 2, God comes in, down to the earth and he forms man out of the dust of the ground, right? Forms man out of the dust of the ground. And then step two is that he breathes into him the breath of life. And it is in that process that the man becomes a living being is what it says. So if you think about it, you and I are the stuff of the earth. So dust, matter, molecules, atoms, like the stuff of this world, that's us. But we're also more than that. We're also the breath of God himself. When those two combine, that's when you and I become a living being. So we are the stuff of this world, but we are also more than the stuff of this world. That's why we have this special role here. If you think about Jesus himself as an individual, we actually believe in the same way about him in a lot of ways, that Jesus is both completely God and completely man at the same time, the tension of that. So if we look like Colossians 1 says this about Jesus, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things, were created through him and for him. For in him, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So according to the scriptures and the apostles, Jesus is fully God. Like they're pretty unapologetic about saying that about him. And yet these same scriptures are also unapologetic about showing you and I that Jesus was a real human dude with real human limitations, just like you and I. So Mark 11, it says that Jesus stops the disciples on their journey because he's hungry and he needs something to eat. In Matthew 8, it's that famous story where Jesus calms the storm. And Matthew, as the author, makes specific 
point to let you and I know that Jesus is sleeping underneath the stern of the boat because he's just like uber wiped out from the full day of ministry that they just had right before that. So Jesus gets tired and he needs to sleep. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is going from town to town to town for three years because just like you and me, like all humans, he is limited to one time and one space, one location, limited in how many people he can interact with, how many people he can touch, and how many people he can heal. So if we pause and really recognize kind of what you and I just accept as, as belief about Jesus and about ourselves as human beings, that Jesus is this mysterious marriage of God and man, and that we ourselves are this mysterious marriage of like heaven and earth, when we start to feel the tension of the scriptures, like in that same way that, oh, how is it like, how is it both us and God? And I, I don't understand that. It's been helpful for me to realize that I already kind of have categories for this, even if I don't really realize it. Like this is kind of always how God has chosen to do things in large measure. That God is a God of relationship and that when he chooses to work out his rule, he chooses to do it in partnership with us. So it's no surprise that when God comes to reveal himself through the scriptures, he does it in a similar fashion that can often feel kind of just full of tension for us. So it's been helpful for me to realize that whenever I feel that tension. So that's the first thing that we believe about the Bible. That is a divine human partnership, a work of divine and human partnership. Does that kind of make sense? You guys with me? We're rolling together? Cool. Uh, so as we continue talking about what we believe that the Bible is, I think within this room, there's probably hundreds of different ideas and notions that are just like popping off in our mind, maybe based upon like what we were raised in, the household we were raised in, what your experience of the Bible was when you were a little kid, maybe just some stuff that you have picked up along the way about it. I'm sure there's just a bunch of different pictures regarding that. So Joshua and I were this week, we're talking about what some of those might be. And uh, one of the, we, we've settled on about three of them, but one of them was, how many of you have grown up like just hearing about the Bible that it was like the handbook of life, right? It's just the guide, the guidebook of life, the rule book of life, whatever you wanna call it. So it was kind of like the, that little manual that you get with your Ikea furniture, you know? Like it's pretty already put together and it's pretty self-explanatory. You can probably figure it out yourself. But if you get confused, consult the manual, you'll get back on track, it's all good, like whatever. Just consult the manual every once in a while. Handbook of life mentality. Second one, which is my personal favorite, because it was so like ubiquitous growing up in my life was, sorry to use that word, ubiquitous. Um, how about this, Bible as the acronym Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. Anybody grow up with that one? It's a great one, I love that one. So what's the, what's the focus right there? It's that, okay, you and I are alive right now, but that's not always gonna be the case. We're all gonna die and we're gonna go somewhere. We're either gonna go to heaven or we're gonna go to the bad place. So here's the basic instructions that you need to know to get to the other side properly and avoid this place, go to this place, right? So that's the focus. And then the last little thing that we talked about was just treating the Bible kind of as, as this devotional type moral guidebook, like this book of virtues kind of a thing. Like, did anyone grow up with the book of virtues in their house? My sister's raising her hand because we're in the same household. Um, so we had this at my house. Um, it, it was the book of virtues. It was this big, fat, honking book that just sat up on the shelf 
It literally looked like the Bible. It was enormous. It was huge. What you would do is you would take it down, and it was a book that was within it contained all of these just individual small snippet stories, each of which told you a nice, neat little moral lesson. And so you open it up, you read the story, you get it, you get the moral of the story, you apply it to your life, you get your little virtue vitamin, and you go about your day, and then it makes you a better person, and then maybe you do that the next day too, maybe you don't, I don't know. But it's just that, that mentality of like, I can choose it, I can read it a little bit, I can take what I need from it, and then I can keep going. So we've got all these different understandings and views of what the Bible is that aren't completely wrong. Like, it's not that it isn't any of those things. It's just that that's not the big picture of what we believe that the Bible is. So most fundamentally, we believe that the Bible is 66 books telling one story that leads to Jesus. The Bible is 66 individual books telling one story that leads to Jesus. You know, something about us as human beings that I think makes us unique is that stories just kind of form our identity as people, right? That you and I are storytellers and story consumers by nature, just kind of how we come. So if you think about like growing up in childhood, the things that like shaped your life, shaped your vision of the future, shaped your understanding of who you are and your dreams, what you wanted your life to look like. It probably was not just the raw facts and information that you learned in school, right? Probably wasn't that stuff. It wasn't like our minds probably were not blown, trajectory of our life shaped and shifted the day that we learned that A squared plus B squared equals C squared, squared. Pythagorean theorem, okay, right. We probably were not like fundamentally altered in that moment. What was the stuff that did that to us though? It was the stories that we consumed, right? It's what we like imbibed and drunk in every day story-wise. For me, it was me laying on my bed, cracking open my book, reading about Lucy for the first time, opening up the wardrobe door, trying to hide from her brothers and sisters, sneaking all the way through to the back, but then never finding the back of the wardrobe. And all of a sudden she finds this forest and she discovers this land of Narnia and Aslan and the whole thing unfolds. It was that It was also me every day after school, blitzing out the front door of the school, seeing my mom's conversion van, blitzing for the conversion van, getting in, hauling home, sitting on the couch, watching Dragon Ball Z. Every single, 30 minute, 30 minute episodes, Goku, every single time, fighting the forces of evil in the universe, doing that next thing to get to that next level of power that he needed to vanquish all the foes. And like, it was that, it was that stuff that just got you so geeked up about life, right? So it's the stories that shaped us. And you know what, it's not just, and it wasn't just like the the book, movie stories, it's also stories that you, maybe people started to tell you about yourself. Like maybe when you were a kid, you had a parent or somebody close to you that was like, hey, you were always so this. You're such a crybaby. Like you are such a X, Y, or Z. And from that moment on, that just kind of lodged in who you are. And you've told yourself that story for the rest of your life. We just love stories. We drink stories. And why do you think it's so easy for us to binge watch series after series after series on Netflix? It's because we love stories. And I think it's hugely important for us to see that the Bible is wanting to do the same thing for you and I. The Bible cares first and foremost about telling you who you are 
and what story you find yourself a part of long before it cares anything about telling you what to do. Another way to put that is that identity always comes before instruction with God. Identity always comes before instruction. So if you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, identity piece comes first, right? I love you guys. I've blessed you. I have made you in my image. I've given you every flipping tree here to eat of. (laughs) I've given you every tree instruction. Trust me and don't eat from that one tree. That's it. Think of Israel being given the law and about to be ushered into the promised land. It's the, it's the identity piece first, right? I am the Lord, your God. I rescued you from Egypt. That's already happened. It's done. I've rescued you from Egypt. I want to bless you. I want to dwell in your midst and keep blessing you forever. Then the instruction piece, here's the covenant that we're going to need to keep in order to make that happen. Identity always comes before instruction with God, and God gave us a story to help us form that identity. But at this point, I wanted to take you guys on this like broad, like 50,000 foot look overview of the Bible. But my dudes at the Bible Project, yes, yes sir. I wish they were literally my dudes. They're not my dudes. I don't really know them. But they're way, way, way better at that than I am. So I'm gonna punt to them. And they're gonna do this. They're gonna show us the story of the Bible. I think we've got a video queued up. But it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but all together they tell one unified story. So, what's the story like? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam, and they're made as God's image. Which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty in the world. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? And yet, humanity now faces a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they can seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them, the choice is simple, take the fruit. It will give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this knowledge, and as a result, they become suspicious and self-protected. It leads to fracturing relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately, whole civilization Babylon that has redefined people as God. And so, God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom into the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God. Even when the rest of the people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in. And so Israel was warned by their own prophets 
that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile, and that's exactly what happened. So, even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends, and these promises are left hanging. And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion. He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into, and resisted its power. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. That's confusing, but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil than even death itself. So now humanity is presented with a new choice. Represented by a new trait. Stick with the old way of being human, or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power. People who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return. The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming these communities of people who follow the way of Jesus. But they face problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders, called apostles, they wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus. And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so the Bible ends by pointing to the future day, when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God. Okay, so that's the story of the Bible. And it brings all of these books together. But what's interesting is that each book contains a kind of literature contributes to the story in a unique way. And that the next video will begin to explore. Yeah. Come on. I mean, oh my gosh. So, so good. Um, all right, we ended it last time. Never mind, I'm not going to get to that. Um, so th this, this is what we believe that the Bible is. It's a story that you and I are supposed to find ourselves within now. The Bible shapes you into the person that you were made to be as a son or daughter of God as you engage with it as a story. As you and I consistently give our eyes and our minds and our hearts over to it, you and I start to look like and think like the God of the Bible and we start to play our part in his story. That's just how this thing was designed to work. So that's what we believe about what the Bible is. It's this divine human partnership and it's this huge story that's making this big arc that we, we find ourselves in now. And uh, 
I wanted to end our time though talking about underneath all of that, some of the things that scripture promises it will do to you and for you as you engage with it. So these are gonna be real quick, shotgun, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. Scripture will do so many things in your life as you begin to partake of it. This is just like a little snapshot of it. So um, first thing, we've already kind of touched on this. Scripture reveals God to us. His nature, his character, his promises, his will for us, his love for us. In the same way that you and I do not really know a person until they finally open their mouth and through their words start to disclose some of the inner workings of who they are. In the same way, you and I will get to know God through what he declares about himself and scripture will show you God in that way. So next thing, scripture gives instruction. Psalm 119 says this, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So scripture is gonna give us guidance on how to love God, how to love others around us and how to love ourselves and think rightly about ourselves. Next thing, scripture instills wisdom. The Bible's not gonna give you this nice, neat, like cookie cutter, ready-made answer for any difficult situation or scenario in your life, but it will equip you with the knowledge and understanding to navigate all things with wisdom. That's the promise it has. Psalm 119 says this, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. So scripture makes us wise. Next thing, scripture anchors our lives. Jesus said this about his own words. He says, hey, the person that hears my words here, but doesn't just hear them, but also does them, puts them into practice. That person is like a man building a house who digs through the sand until he finds solid rock and he builds the foundation of his house on that rock. Storms are gonna come, trials are gonna come, but that thing is gonna remain unshaken. So scripture anchors our lives. Next thing, scripture sets free. Jesus in John 8 says this, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It will unlock all of these things in your life and set you free as you know and abide in Jesus's words. Scripture convicts us of sin. In Acts 2, Peter is, is preaching about Jesus who'd just been crucified and, and risen. He's preaching about Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. And it says this about the crowds who heard him. It said, now when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do to be saved? So scripture on one hand convicts us of sin, but not only that, it also teaches us the way of salvation. Paul is writing to his, kind of his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says this, he says, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the scripture prepares us and reveals Jesus and the salvation that is to be found in him. And lastly, 
Scripture goes to war for you. Scripture will go to war for you. In Ephesians 6, Paul gives that famous passage where he tells his audience and us to, to take up the full armor of God. You know, he says, put on the, like the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the, the belt of truth. And it's this really beautiful passage. And what, what you might notice about it is that all of the things that Paul says to take up, they're all defensive protection kind of items. So breastplate, helmet, that kind of deal, except for the very, very last thing he says. He says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Sword of the spirit is the word of God. We actually talk about this a lot around here at Hillsborough Village, that, that Paul thinks that you and I in this age are in this spiritual war zone. That you and I, it, and it's not against flesh and blood, it's not against other people, but it is against unseen spiritual realities that do not love God, do not love you, and want to do everything they possibly can to keep you from knowing and loving God. But that's the environment that we find ourselves in. And in this environment, the Word of God acts as this weapon that you and I can actively take up and use to cut through the lies of the enemy that are always trying to make inroads into our lives. So scripture, as we drink it in, as we find ourselves in it, begins to act as this weapon for us. As we bring this morning to a close, I did wanna end with just like a couple encouragements and all of this. Um, first one being, the Bible is a weird deal. It is, it is a weird thing. Like we can just like, acknowledge that. It is huge. It's confusing. It's like 2,000 years old. Like, what am I supposed to do with a 2,000-year-old book? Like, I have to get in the context of it. That, that, that requires work. Oh my gosh, that's daunting. It's literally just enormous, like to where, like, when you sit down in the morning, okay, I think I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to read this thing. Where do you even start? It's like thousands of pages, just like the practical, like, oh, I don't know how to do it. And then kind of some of the, like, the deep questions we have about it, like, can I trust this thing? We covered some of that this morning, but by no means were we able to like, answer all your questions that you might have about it. In fact, some of this might've even brought up some more questions. And my encouragement in all of that is that questions are a really, really good thing that we don't ever wanna shy away from, that they show you where you need to dig in where you need to find stuff out for yourself. And that it's my belief and it's our belief that, that the good questions that you have about the Bible, the Bible has good answers for itself. Like it is a reliable thing. And as you dig into it, you're not gonna be left wanting. It's actually gonna yield up some really, really cool stuff for you. So if you feel the tension and the friction of that this morning, please let it drive you to press into what this thing is and ask more and better questions. You're gonna find some really, really cool stuff as you do that. And the second thing I wanted to leave us with, if you're like, yes, awesome, this is all great. I'm taking this piece of paper home. I'm gonna learn it. I'm gonna share it with friends. It's gonna be so good. I believe all this. I just still have no idea what to do when I sit down and crack the Bible open. Like I get confused and it's weird and I don't understand it. And I just get frustrated and I just give up. Like, if that's you and you just kind of get, get hung up on the practical side of things, my encouragement is please come back next week. Like we are devoting an entire morning like this to exclusively talking about 
how do we engage with this thing practically? What does this look like for us as individuals? What does it look like for us as groups of people to start using this thing? And we're gonna equip everyone or try to equip everyone with tools and places to go and ways to think about this and practices to start implementing. So if that's where you are, please let that drive you to come back and hang out with us again next week. I think you're really, really gonna love it. For now, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna go take communion together as a family. Um, as we go into communion and into our coming week, what, one thing I thought would be helpful for us to reflect on a little bit is this idea of story that we talked about this morning. That you and I are, are, have grown up being shaped by some story or stories, and even now, there's stories and narratives that we are believing about ourselves that are affecting how we view ourselves and how we view everyone and everything around us, that that's just true. So reflect on like, what are some of those stories in your life, whether somebody told you them or whether you consumed those as a kid? And then on the other side of things, what might it look like for you to start letting God's word and the story of the Bible play that role in your life? Start to see all of these other narratives. We name them And instead of giving them the power, what if we let the Bible have that role in our lives? What could come of that? So that's that's what I hope we'll reflect on a little bit this morning as we go to communion. As we do that, um, you're gonna, after I pray, you're gonna get up, you're gonna exit towards the center, get communion at any of the tables in the corner and come back to your seats on the side. And then you can take communion in your own time individually. We're gonna do that individually this morning. So I hope this morning has been helpful info blast, apologies for it. Sorry, I'm not sorry. Like I really, I hope this has been helpful and really fun. Come back next week. We're gonna get into the weeds of, okay, how do we start engaging with this? I love you guys. Thank you for being here. Let's pray and then take communion as a family. God, thank you that you are a God who speaks. You are not a God who stands distant and far off. You are not a God who leaves us to our own devices to try to figure out who you are or what it means to live in this world, what it means to exist and be a creature, a creation of yours, but you have spoken. And you have spoken in a way that we can engage with. God, I pray this morning for us, one, for just a humility, that just as willing to acknowledge, gosh, some of this is weird and we don't know how to understand it and we're gonna learn and we're gonna grow in it, I pray for that humility, but above all, I pray for a hunger for your word. And in the same way that we just hunger and yearn for food and drink, that we would learn to hunger and thirst for your word. Jesus, you said it yourself. You said, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I pray that we would marinate on that this morning, that the word that you speak to us is more practically necessary for our existence than even food and drink. I pray that we would dwell on that this morning, that as we consider these stories this week, that we're telling ourselves that we have always learned and believed that we would begin to let your word start to fill that role in our lives, God. So be with us, send your spirit to give hunger where we need hunger, to give insight where we need insight. We give you this morning, we give you our weeks, and we love you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray, amen.